Recently, I've been thinking a lot about my family home in England. It's been a very long time since I got to see them. And uh, this week, I was reminiscing to myself, and I found myself remembering one of the best times that we had together as a family, which was uh, more than two decades ago. We were all together on, vac uh, on vacation in Croatia. My brother, my sister, my parents, and me. And we stayed in a hotel near the beach. It was overlooking the Adriatic Sea. And uh, just to the south of us, there was this small mountain that climbed steeply up from the shore. And perched on the top of the mountain was an ancient-looking monastery. It was remarkably beautiful. It was like something out of a fairy tale. Um, so my family sat down to breakfast one day, one of our first mornings there, and we were talking about what we wanted to do with the day. And we agreed that it would be really exciting to try to hike all the way up the mountain uh, to the monastery at the top. Um, and that morning, as we sat down to breakfast, we were, we were joined by another guest at the hotel. He was someone we'd never met before. And uh, all these years later, I still remember his name, because I've never met anyone before or since called this. His name was Roddy. Uh, Roddy, yeah, and he was uh, the kind of Englishman that you might expect to find out on safari somewhere. Uh, pale, plump, a little bit dandruffy, uh, wearing this like floppy brimmed sun hat, uh, a shirt with lots of pockets, cargo shorts, and socks underneath his sandals. Um, but he still carried with him that uniquely English, I can conquer the world attitude and just brimming over with enthusiasm. And I remember that he had these two little white legs that had been kept hidden indoors all through the dark English winter. And now, on this first trip out in shorts, were whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them. So that was Roddy. Um, and when he heard about our planned adventure up the mountain, he enthusiastically asked if he could join us. So we called over the breakfast waiter, and we told him what we were planning to do. And the waiter told us, oh, yeah, that's great. That's a really popular thing to do. And there's a great path. You just have to find the beginning of it, and it winds all the way up the mountain, and it's a relatively easy climb. So he gave us directions, and off we went. And Roddy led the way. And uh, we found the start of the path. Uh, and it led up through cool and beautiful woods. And it was nice going for a little while. And then the path kind of petered out. Uh, it got harder and harder to find until it really just disappeared altogether. And we were just crawling through thick woods. Um, and then we hit this like dry stream bed, which was really rocky. And we followed that for a while. And then eventually that petered out too. And at that point, it seemed like the only thing to do was just to like keep on pressing upward, straight up through the forest, and hope we might hit the path again. So that's what we did, and it was rough going. Steep and thick and thorny and very slippery. And about 10 minutes in, Roddy gave up. Uh, he told us that he just didn't think he could make it any further. And he turned around, and he headed back the way we had come. And so that left my family with this moment of decision. Do we go back with Roddy? Do we give up too? Or do we head onwards up the mountain and try to reach our goal? And we all realized that we, we'd clearly missed the path somewhere along the line. We were basically completely lost. Um, and as you looked upward through the trees, the mountain just went on and on. It seemed to go on forever. It looked like it, there was, it was hopeless that we were going to get all the way up there in conditions like this. But you know, the rest of my family, they were still having a pretty good time. So my dad cheered us on. He was like, just try a little bit harder. 
a little bit longer and we'll see if we can find this path. So uh, we carried on up this mountain and it just took us about five more minutes. After about five more minutes of upward scrambling, we emerged on this wide, flat path. And it appeared to us at the time like an interstate highway. Uh, it climbed ahead of us gently, smoothly, all the way up the mountain. It was as easy as our breakfast waiter had described. And we immediately realized that at no point on our adventure so far had we been on this path. <laughs> We had missed it from the very beginning. And from that point, there was no doubt that we were able to reach the top. So we did. And I, as I remember, I can't remember anything about the monastery itself, uh, except that there was a restaurant right near it where we could sit in the shade under a trellis of vines and drink cool drinks before we headed back down on the path. Um, and then we got back to the hotel in time for afternoon tea on the pool deck where, of course, we found Roddy. Uh, and we got to tell him all about our adventure up the mountain. And my family really loves to tell that story. We, we laugh hard about that. Um, and it's far from unique among Hall family misadventures. Um, but it is one of our favorites. And as I look back on it now, as I was thinking about it this week, reading Nehemiah, it actually seems like quite an important moment in my life because it says a lot about leadership, doesn't it? It says a lot about the cost of making plans poorly and of not adequately counting the cost before you set out. It shows the importance of having a bit of grit in your leadership when it comes to the question of whether we turn back. And it demonstrates something that I have since found to be true in almost every project or adventure, that when you're starting out, the end is always much further away than you think. But when you're in the middle, the end is usually much closer than you think. And that I have found to be true over and over again. So uh, if our friend Roddy offered us poor leadership on that mountain in Croatia, I want to turn now to Nehemiah and see what good leadership looks like. So this is page 398 of the Church Bibles. 398, uh, Nehemiah's just before Job and Psalms. You can find that now. Uh, last week, Taylor took us through Nehemiah chapter 1. And this week, we're going to explore the first half of chapter 2. So Taylor said last week that Nehemiah could arguably be called the second greatest leader in the Old Testament, behind only Moses. Chapter 1 shows us his impressive devotion to prayer, the way he prayed with passion and wisdom and authority. And now here in chapter 2, we, found, we find that Nehemiah was also a man of action. He was a man who answered God's call to go and do a difficult and dangerous thing. So we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 2 today, and we're going to see three things, his courage, his continued prayerfulness, and his careful planning. Nehemiah's courage, his continued prayerfulness, and his careful planning. So first, his courage. So this is from verses 1 through 3. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So I hope we can recognize that this is the moment where Nehemiah takes a huge risk. He takes his first big risk and that the whole rest of his story in the book uh, hinges on this moment. Nehemiah, we learn at the end of chapter 1, was the king's cupbearer. A cupbearer means he was a servant. He was a pretty high-ranking servant, trusted, 
but he was still just a servant. He was not a member of the king's court or one of his counselors or advisors. He would not generally have had permission to speak to the king. His job was literally to drink wine. Yes, <laughs> pretty great job. Um, kings had cupbearers so that people couldn't poison them, right? So every time that wine was served to the king, the cupbearer would stand in his presence of the king and he would take this first great big sip of wine. And then they'd wait around for a few minutes. <laughs> and if the cupbearer didn't keel over, then the cup would be declared safe and handed to the king. So it's kind of pretty similar to the job that our Secret Service does now to protect the president, like when they open all his mail so that if there's anything dangerous in the mail, they will be the ones harmed instead of the president. So um, the cupbearer, he did have regular face-to-face -face access to the king, but he was still just a servant, and he couldn't expect to be treated like the king's buddy. Um, it would seem from these verses that servants were expected to look happy in the presence of their king, as Sarah talked about with the children. The king doesn't need you coming in here with your problems. Just do your job and look happy about it. Um, and I think that's why Nehemiah can say with confidence in verse 1, I had not been sad in his presence. He hadn't been sad in the king's presence before. And that's pretty striking when you think about the timeline, because Nehemiah had certainly felt sad before. Because uh, he got the bad news, we find out in chapter 1, all the way back in the month of Kislev, which is around November or December. And then here in chapter 2, these events are taking place in the month of Nisan, which is March or April. So it's three or four months later. Um, so he's surely been in to see the king during this time. The king must have drunk wine <laughs> within those three or four months. Kings tend to drink a lot of wine. Um, so Nehemiah must have come before the king feeling sad, but he just hasn't shown it before on his face. So why now? And we might look at the possible circumstances for uh, why it is now. Verse 6, if you glance down, adds this little note that the queen was there sitting beside the king when this conversation happened. And as we look back at Persian history, we find that it was pretty rare for queens to attend banquets. Think about um, Vashti in the story of Esther. Um, they didn't attend the banquet, so um, maybe uh, all the wine that the king had had to drink in the meantime had, had been in big banquets, uh, public places where there was no good opportunity to talk to him, and maybe what we've got now is a situation for the first time when the king is calling for wine in his private chamber with the queen beside him, and that would, of course, present a very different kind of opportunity. So we don't really know, but that's one possible interpretation of what's going on here. For, uh, Nehemiah entered the king's presence and finally let himself appear sad in the presence of his king. And we've got to think that's probably deliberate. Um, he wasn't hiding it anymore. And so we recognize that it was a dangerous move. It was a dangerous move. It was probably rule-breaking. And the king noticed right away. So when you think about Hebrew narrative, um, what you're mostly looking for, first of all, is direct speech. Hebrew narrative loves to put the most important details in the passage into people's mouths in direct speech. And if you notice this passage, we've got all of the context in a single verse. All the setup is just there in verse 1. And right away in verse 2, we get into the speech. It's right into what the king said. The king speaks first in verse 2. He begins the conversation and the king initiates with, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. 
This is just, I love this. This is so remarkable. It's a remarkable that a Persian king would say these words. Imagine Joe Biden in the White House and a junior staffer comes in with, a, with some kind of memo to hand to him and Biden says, hey, why is your face sad? It looks like there's some sorrow in your heart. We would find that amazing, wouldn't we? That's striking. Even today, even in our low power distance egalitarian culture, how much more striking then is this coming from a Persian king? I mean, here's a guy who probably murdered members of his own family to get on the throne in the first place. He's not likely to take a side gig offering a counseling service. But here he gives Nehemiah this huge invitation to share what's wrong in his heart. It's a wide open door and Nehemiah trembles with fear as he hears it because he realized that his face has been noticed. But then he does go ahead and walk through the door that the king has opened for him. So Nehemiah here bites the bullet and he summons up his courage at the critical moment. He tells the king the truth about what's wrong. Now, second, along with his courage, we see that Nehemiah also continued in prayer. So this is verses 4 and 5. So it says, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So, after the king's asked Nehemiah what's wrong, and Nehemiah's told him the truth, that Jerusalem's in ruins, the king then takes initiative for a second time. First, he says, why are you sad? Second, he says, what do you need? Similarly amazing, here's an invitation to ask for help. And again, it's very striking, because Nehemiah, in the first statement, wasn't asking for anything. He knew that he had no right to ask for anything. But beyond his wildest dreams, the king is now inviting him to. And by this point, we have to marvel at the sheer power of God, don't we? In answer to Nehemiah's prayers, this is not how a Persian king is expected to behave. This king's heart has been fully prepared. The ground is fully softened. God had said in his word, the king's heart is like a watercourse in his hand. He can direct it however he chose. And here he's proving it, isn't he? This king is prepped. And prayer is what's done it. Prayer has opened a way when there was no way. Prayer has done what months of pleading or reasoning or arguing could never have done. Prayer has made the dangerous situation safe. And it saved Nehemiah just tons of fruitless time. So we remember that Nehemiah is a leader who's a man of action, but it was through prayer that he originally figured out what to do. It was through prayer that he summoned the courage to do it. And now in the heat of the moment, he seals the deal with one final prayer in verse 4. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. <laughs> it's a lovely little textual note right here in the middle. And as we think about the sequence of the story, we can't imagine that Nehemiah like, stopped for half an hour and got on his knees and uh, made the king wait for an answer while he prayed this lengthy prayer. Uh, it must have been the silent work of just a couple of seconds, mustn't it? Must have been an arrow prayer, shot up to heaven. Lord, please give me words now and please give me your favor now. Uh, just quietly in his heart as he began to answer this question. 
I just love the intimacy of Nehemiah's relationship with God that's just revealed in this moment. And it's so like, uh, as Jesus invites us as his disciples to just continually make our requests known to God. And there's no sense of like, it only has to be in these certain times. It can be at any time. We don't need lots of words. We're always welcome to just shoot off prayers like this up to heaven in the heat of the moment. And our God is always with us, especially in the crunch times, right? So notice that Nehemiah never once lost sight uh, of his God as being this huge, powerful king who's much mightier than the king. Um, And he never lost sight that God's always in control, still in control of this situation right now while we're actually talking. So it makes sense to pray here in the middle of it. Think about this king, King Artaxerxes, most powerful man in the world, right? He had authority over life and death for everyone Nehemiah had ever met. This was a mighty king. We have never stood in the presence of anyone as powerful as King Artaxerxes. He could do pretty much whatever he liked. But then back three months ago, when Nehemiah had a problem, who's the one he went to? Who did he go to? He's like, I have a problem and I can't fix it myself. So let's see, who do I know who's powerful enough to do this? Well, I've got this regular face-to-face access with the most powerful king in the world. And I know the God of heaven. I know I'm going to take this one to God. Right? So is this our first impulse with our problems? When we have a problem at school, is it like, oh, we've got to go straight to the school board? No, no, no. What about going to God first? We've got a problem in the church. Do we go straight to the pastors? No. God, first. Problem in the city government. Do we go straight to the mayor? No. We know the living God. Let's get really good at this impulse of taking the problem to him first. To the one who can really fix it. To the one who can do a good job fixing it. Take it to him first. Not later. And not just quickly so that we check the box before we write an angry email. Godly leadership is prayer first, then action, and real prayer, months, months of prayer, fasting, not just five minutes in our quiet time to say that we got the job done. So Nehemiah's prayers had convinced him of what he needed to ask for when the king gave him this invitation to ask. And what he needed to ask for was permission to go. So Nehemiah knew that the call to act was on his life, that God was calling him to respond to this problem, calling him personally to go. So when the king says, what can I do? Nehemiah says, send me. God had already decreed that permission, hadn't he? So what's the king going to do to stand in the way? Artaxerxes was powerless to stand against God. There was no choice but to give the permission. So, thirdly, at the end of this section, Nehemiah shows his careful planning. Verses 6 through 8. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? (laughs) So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. So it's really three amazing steps of this sequence, this king being behaving in such a surprising way. 
but it also speaks to Nehemiah's careful planning. So Nehemiah already knew God was sending him. So in conversation with God in prayer, he had been making plans. He knew how long the journey was going to take and what permissions would be required and what materials would be needed. So Nehemiah had counted the cost, just as Jesus said wise people do. And the king generously gave him everything he needed. I think it has to be really important to the outcome of this conversation that the queen was sitting there right beside the king, yeah? Because the detail is thrown in right there in verse 6, uh, toward the end of the conversation, although we've got to imagine the queen was sitting there the whole time, right? So this tactic in Hebrew uh, narrative of throwing in a detail sort of out of order when it's needed is called dyschronologized narrative. Hebrew stories do it a lot. And you know if they're throwing it in right here that it's a critical detail right here. So we can't see exactly what influence the queen had at this point in the conversation, but she did have some. <laughs> it's relevant to the outcome of this conversation. Um, I've already said it might suggest that it happened in a more private setting instead of a great banquet. Um, but also when you think about great kings, when they're sitting amongst their lords and nobles, they need to look strong don't they? They need to look tough and no nonsense. But when a king is sitting in front of his queen, he wants to look generous, big-hearted and magnanimous. It's true, guys. Um, so the queen is not reported as saying anything here, but maybe there was a certain look that she gave him. Maybe she was sitting close enough that her elbows became useful. But one way or another, her influence came into play. So the outcome was this king's question, how long will you be gone? Which shows a distinct openness to the idea of Nehemiah leaving. I laughed at this question when I read it because it's also uh, the engineer's dreaded question. You say, honey, I'm going over to Bob's house to help him put up a fence. And you know every time the very next question is going to be some form of verse 6. How long will you be gone and when will you return? And it really doesn't matter at that point what you say. <laughs> you give her the longest time possible in your wildest imaginings, and you're still going to be off by at least a factor of two. Um, that's just engineering. That's just building. It always takes so much longer than you think. I had a project manager in the engineering firm I used to work for who was usually like, really good at estimating project schedules. He still overshot them by a little bit but by much less than everyone else. So I went into his office one day and I asked him for the secret. And he told me, he said, I think about everything that needs to happen in the project. I imagine the dumbest and slowest person in the company doing it, how long they would take. I then add some hours for computer problems and mistakes in doing it again. I sum up the total of the numbers and I multiply by two. <laughs> so, so whatever Nehemiah said to the king in answer to this question, you notice it's not recorded in the Bible. The reason is that the Bible can only record things that are true. Uh, whatever Nehemiah said to this question, it wasn't true. He was actually in Jerusalem for 12 years, and it's pretty certain the king would not have let him go if he had said, I'm going to be gone 12 years. Uh, but barring that point, which no project manager has ever gotten right, uh, everything else here shows really good planning. Uh, Nehemiah found a way to get both travel permissions and valuable resources from the king, and uh, all of a sudden, an impossible task was looking more and more possible. So, in my vacation in Croatia, Roddy led us on a very poorly executed adventure with minimal advanced planning and a failure of courage when the going got tough. 
But here in contrast, Nehemiah shows us good leadership in chapter 2 because he had great courage, prayerfulness through all his decisions, and careful planning. So what are we going to learn from Nehemiah today when it comes to our journey with God following the way of Jesus? We have to realize that the way of Jesus is full of risks. Going and making disciples of all nations is always risky. And many, many times when Jesus was here with us on earth, he called people directly to do things that were risky, scary, sacrificial, and even downright dangerous. And he said to his followers, whoever will not take up his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So as you think back on your own life, when was the last time that you took a risk, a serious risk, something that left you trembling with fear? but you went and summoned your courage and did it anyway. I hope that as you look back at your life, you can call to mind lots of examples, uh, and that some of them were recent, risks for Jesus, like going and explaining the gospel to a stranger who doesn't know it and maybe is hostile to it, or offering to pray for a stranger, or fostering a needy child, something that's risky, something that feels scary. And I also hope that you're taking just general life risks, like, you're starting a new business, or you're asking the girl of your dreams out on a date, or you're jumping from the high dive at Wakala Springs. Just general life risks as well as risks for the kingdom, because life involves risk. We are not living full human lives in the image of God if we are not risking, if we are not doing things that scare us. Because our God is a risking God, he opens his heart and he makes himself vulnerable every day to people like us. And he let his son be born in a stable just a few miles away from the armies of Herod. So God is a risk-taking God and we must be risk-taking people if we want to be like God. All the work that's worth doing in the world involves risk. And if we are not risking regularly, we cannot reasonably expect to achieve anything worth doing for Jesus. So the risk that we're going to invite you into today is the risk to join one of our missional communities. They're starting up this week. And not just to join it, but to give yourselves to the work, to the community, heart and soul, to these people, and to the mission that they're taking on together. And friends, that's going to be a risk. It's going to be a risk to open up to fellow believers, to be honest with them, to trust them, and to take on their cares. And it's going to be a risk to join in the mission that they're doing together in our city. It might fail. It might be embarrassing or painful. But a life that won't take risks will never be a life worth living. Now, second, as we seek to serve the Lord excellently, we can find a place for both prayer and planning. They go together hand in hand. They are not mutually exclusive. So we don't say either on the one hand, I'm going to pray about it, and, um, and then I won't have to study or think hard or work hard or make any plans. And neither do we say, I'm going to plan the heck out of this, so I don't really need to pray about it. We see here in Nehemiah that godly leadership requires both. It marries the two together. We pray at the beginning, so we begin the right plans. We don't find a very efficient way to dig our own grave. Uh, we pray to edit those plans, to refine them, to think of things we haven't thought of. And then we pray to execute those plans. Nehemiah is a great model of this. And we see our Lord Jesus is an even better one. And finally, we count the cost of our projects before we start. <laughs> 
We weigh what we have against what we're going to need. We don't start building the tower unless we know we can finish it. But here's the other side of this. Once we have started, we stick with it until we win. Once you've begun the tower, no giving up, no going back. Take all the time you need to decide who you're going to marry. But once you've decided, there's no giving up and no going back. There's no more counting the cost once you're in. You stick with it till the end, whatever it costs. Take all the time you need to decide whether you're going to be baptized to give your whole life to the service of Jesus. But once you're baptized, no going back. Once you set your feet on the path of the project God has called you to do, you do not give up until you win. Daring and winning are the life we have been called to. We provide the courage. God provides the victory. That mountain that you are halfway up today, the summit seems much further off than it seemed when you started. But I sincerely believe that if you keep going and do not give up, then you will find that summit much nearer to you than it seems to be right now. Amen.